0: It's the 10th episode, and uh, I'm going to break with my own tradition. My own tradition in these podcasts is to just speak off the top of my head without research. I've argued that that's a valuable way of looking at a, a, a place like Ethiopia, and a culture like Ethiopia, and an idea like Ethiopia um you don't want only a professor's perspective if you want a nice full appreciation of a place you need you know you need to hear from people who are superstitious for example or people who know very little who are outsiders like me but who are asking quite interesting questions perhaps, but not worrying about the answers, that can be very valuable. You don't always want answers. Sometimes you just want questions. You can learn a lot from questions and um, you can get people excited about a place by asking questions and not knowing the answers. Big fan of that. I'm a big fan of even getting things wrong and not being desperate to have everything correct. Correct. Because as I've sort of argued, that's the way I learn very often is to think a wrong thing and then have it corrected later. It sticks in my mind better when that happens. So I I like getting fed misinformation because when I get alternative information down the track, it allows me to for that dialogue to really... um, Get me into the nuance of what might be, you know, what might have actually happened in a history. Okay, now, but be that as it may, my goddaughter has sent me an article, and I'm going to read it. Um, I've scanned it, and I wouldn't be reading it if I didn't think it was good. I think it's very good. It's not written in a style that I would write an article in. It's like a lot of histories and articles. It goes back in time to, you know, periods in time where there's no primary source records at all and it says this happened, then that happened, and then these people did this, and then these people did that, and, you know, Ethiopia, you know, the seat of power moved from here to there, and there's very little in the grammar to suggest that you know, there might be any um, doubt in what they're saying. You know, it's pretty much presented as here's a chronology of things that happened in Ethiopia. And personally, I like articles that use grammar that suggests the author is not that certain of themselves. Having said that, um, in the extract that my goddaughter has sent me, The very first words do, you know, for the very first part of it at least, uh, the author does um, have a qualifier in there and doesn't say such and such happened, you know. Um, The very first line of the article that I'm about to read, and here it comes, says that Ethiopian legend says, boom, 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 and then goes on to talk about Lullabella. But as far as I remember scanning the article, that's missing from the rest of the article. Okay, let's read it. And it does start with Lullaballa. And just match this up with everything I've been speaking about in the previous nine episodes. Um, And as I read it, I don't know who has read it, I thought... um, my said, daughter said it might have been commissioned by Oxfam, this article. But she has only sent me a middle section of a much larger uh, article. So I have no idea who wrote it. And I have no idea of what was said before this little section and what was said after. So what we're getting is um, a little section of someone's perspective. And we don't know who that person is. So, um, any validity that this episode has, has to be found in the words themselves. And, you know, that can recommend an article. You you don't have to, Uh, if you're going to write something about a a place like Ethiopia, you don't have to give your qualifications as a history professor or whatever. Your very words can betray or recommend you as a bad or good source. I'm a bit of a believer in that. Like, my children aren't allowed to use Wikipedia as a source at school. Whereas I like Wikipedia, you know. And I don't always check who wrote the Wikipedia article. You can check that sort of thing, but I don't bother um, but I often say to myself, um, if you've got a keen eye, you know, or if, you, if you've got a nice doubting mind and you, you doubt everything you read, like I do, then Wikipedia is fine because you're not taking it as gospel anyway. Um, so, you know, I read an, an article on the liberal arts, the Wikipedia entry on the liberal arts, and it was worded beautifully. I didn't check who wrote it, I didn't check who wrote it. Uh, but the words themselves um, uh, recommended the article as being, as having a certain amount of validity. And it wouldn't have mattered whether it was written by a professor who had done 50 years training on the liberal arts, or if it had been just a bloke uh, in a t-shirt in his shed, writing the article. Um, the article stood up as being good just in the way it was worded. That can happen if you're good with your grammar. All right, end your expression. Let's read and see what whether this is a good article. Ethiopian legend says that the whole massive undertaking of Lalabella, by the way, was inspired by a dream of King Lalabella and built with the help of angels. The churches are almost invisible uh, until one stumbles upon them through an ordinary-looking Ethiopian town. Carved into the hillside, each of the ten churches is interconnected by a series of labyrinthine passages, stairways and openings carved in the red rock. On a cool Sunday morning, the austere chants of some of the 450 priests of Lullabella rise echoing from the subterranean places of worship. Deep drumbeats resonate from the recesses of the churches. Worshippers from the town and surrounding villages kneel to kiss the rock itself and, wrapped against the cold in traditional thick white gabby blankets, murmur prayers to the wall. Skeletons of famous monks are still stored in crevices in the rocks. Inside the gloom of the churches... Frayed embroidery shrouded in a sanctum from prying eyes and tourists' cameras. Just bear with me for a second, I'm looking for a charger because the thing is nearly dead here. Um, Sunlight pierces the open windows in shafts, and pigeons flutter noisily in the courtyards. Indian swastikas and Jewish stars of David. carved side by side on the walls, striking evidence oh I just turned my laptop off bear with me for a second sorry I was was fiddling with wires at the same time as reading that it's always a bad thing to do isn't it but while I'm waiting I'm a bit surprised uh, or I'm almost back I'm a bit surprised that about um, the Indian influences in the church back this far the 13th century. I mean, I'm not surprised to be the opposite of the Indians had anything to do with each other but uh, I thought you know, they were pretty strongly unilaterally Christian from everything I've heard at that time but it looks like um, it's a, a lot more multi-theistic sort of at this point in time, not just purely Christian. That's very interesting, actually. We'll get to that. All right, I'm back. Indian swastikas and Jewish stars of David are carved side by side on the walls, striking evidence of Ethiopia's position at the crossroads of human beliefs. After the almost monastic period of King Lalabella, dynasties came and went. Capitals rose and fell, and power shifted from the northern Tigrayans to the central Amharas and back. Society oscillated between anarchy and feudal monarchy, closely associated with the Orthodox Church. Literature and philosophy flourished. Stop the press. I wonder what sort of philosophy. Um, Connections with the Greeks and the Romans and all that. Cassie will have to find out about that. Okay, back to the article. There was no fixed capital, but the seat of power was effectively wherever the king and his army happened to be camped. Islam had filtered into Ethiopia from Arabia since the time of the prophet Muhammad, and its strongholds were naturally towards the east of Ethiopia. From the mercantile city of Harar, Ahmed ibn Ibrahim Ilgazi, nicknamed Gragan, the left-handed, rose up against the Christian emperor Lebna Dengel in 1527. Gragan launched a jihad against the Christians and overran much of the country burning churches and looting gold wherever he went. And Cassie, I wonder whether this is the Christians reporting this, but anyway, let's plough on. His armies, demanding conversion to Islam or death, reached as far north as Axum. But travellers' tales of Ethiopia's Christian empire had filtered out to Europe. In response to Lebner dengels appeal, the Portuguese sent a group of musketeers who contributed to the defeat and death of Gragan in 1543. Okay, now next screen, which I have to find. Here it comes. Ah, and the next screen speaks about the coming of the Oromo or right, we've just talked about the Islamic people coming into the east and uh, redefining Ethiopia somewhat and then what the, um, the Christians asking the Portuguese to come and help ok I can understand that ok the coming of the Oromo and oh just by the way the Portuguese did come and um, My goddaughter was talking about that, and the Jesuits, and Cassie, you won't mind, but um, I'll just say my goddaughter had a wonderful way of saying Jesuits, and it might actually be the right way of saying it. She said it in such a French way, and I think it is French. She said the Je suis. (laughs) And I had never heard that before, and I loved it. Um, And I might might start calling the, you know, we're all Catholics, you know, but I might start calling the Jesuits the Je suis. I wonder what that would be in French. I did French, but I, je, I, je suis. I am sweet. Whatever. Um, I have a sweet. <laughs> okay. The coming of the Oromo. At about the same time as the Christian Empire was under attack from the east, the south was being overtaken by the Oromo people. They spread north, east and west throughout the 16th century and penetrated the Amhara areas as far north as Wallow and Godjam. Gragan's former power base, Harar itself, was attacked until a peace agreement was signed in 1568. Okay, so not entirely Dark Ages. I presume, Cassie, that this peace agreement is extant as they call it you know that it exists i presume um i find this with most countries there's no real dark ages ever you know even the european dark ages um they call them dark ages you know because no writing and then you just right throughout you see lots of writing (laughs) all right The Oromo region today makes up the heart of Ethiopia. Okay, that's an interesting perspective. Um, Moving on. The conquests and... The geographical heart, I presume they say. All right. The conquests and subsequent settlement of Oromos all over Ethiopia have been described by one sociologist as... The making of modern Ethiopian society. Okay, the making of modern Ethiopian society. All right, this is a really good perspective here. It's saying that Ethiopia is all the richer for the Oromos having um, intermarried, infiltrated, becoming part of all of Ethiopia. So the more Oromo, the better, basically, is what this is saying. So, you know, it's good to have all these different perspectives. I've heard other perspectives, you know, where uh, some people have said that um, the making of Tigray might be for the Tigrays to have nothing to do with the Oromos. You know, I'm sure not all Tigrayans think that, but I've heard some say that. Uh, Whereas this article is saying no, you're looking at, wrong, looking at it wrong, Tigrayans. Um, if, you, if you let Oromo people completely integrate with you and become a, a very strong Tigrayan-Oromo-Amharan mix, the whole lot of you, then Ethiopia will be all the richer for it. You know, And this is the worldwide thought pattern these days, that if every culture just um, goes very melting pot, everyone will be the richer for it. You know, and that goes for Australia too. Um, and for you to argue, for anyone to argue against this is for that person to risk getting smashed by people who are right-thinking in the world. Um, I am immune to being smashed in this way because... I don't use social media, for example, so nobody can actually get to me. Uh, so, um, but mm-hmm. let's move on again. All valuable perspectives, these things. you know, I like to get a perspective from a tribal perspective where, you know, let's say a hardline Tigrayan says it would be great if the Oromos just disappeared from our site forever and didn't integrate with mm-hmm. us and... You know, get a perspective from an Oromo person who's the same and said, I hope I never see another Tigrayan in my life. This is where you get um, where you get to the nuance of a history of a place like Ethiopia. If you get to know who hates whom and who loves whom, and you know, a perspective where, oh, if only everyone could get together, it would be better. All right, but this article pretty much certainly... Says that Ethiopia is all the richer for Oromos having settled and in, uh, integrated all over Ethiopia. That's exactly what they're saying, right? And oh, here's some nice, here's some extra nice stuff about how nice the Oromo people are. Rather than ruling the people of the areas they invaded, the Oromo tended to integrate and intermarry, and today. They are the most numerous ethnic group in Ethiopia and one of the largest tribes in Africa. Right. Next section is called The Rise and Fall of the Empire of Gonda. And it starts off with the sentence As Ethiopia Recovered. Now, I don't know what they mean by Ethiopia. You know, if you have an empire of Gonda, which I don't know anything about it yet, um, um, well, how does that, is that within Ethiopia, an empire within Ethiopia? And if it's an empire, well, an empire usually uh, means something self-contained and self-ruling and self-controlling and not answerable to anybody. So if there is an, if there is an empire of Gonda, um, is that one and the same thing as an Ethiopia? Or is Ethiopia at this point in time uh, a you know, a term we're using these days for the entire region as a whole. But you know, there was no such thing as a political and social idea of Ethiopia back then, I don't know. But um just reading that headline, the Empire of Gonda uh, well, if it was if it was if it was Ethiopia it'd say the Empire of Ethiopia, wouldn't it? It's very vague what Ethiopia is, and I'm not even sure that it, as I've mentioned in previous episodes that the people back then were even calling themselves Ethiopia in general. The people of the Empire of Gondar probably called themselves Gondarites. Okay, and if you had have said you're an Ethiopian, they might have said what okay as Ethiopia recovered, reduced in power and territory after sixteen years of civil war, is this between the Islamics on the one side and the um, and the uh, Christians slash Portuguese on the other or the Oromos invading, and that's the civil war. Or both? Let's move on. As Ethiopia recovered, reduced in power and territory, after 16 years of civil war, okay. the emperors moved farther north and west, close to Lake Tana. A new capital was formed at Gonda, ...in 1636... ...which became the first fixed capital of Ethiopia since Lalibela, A series of rulers built solid palaces and castles in the city... ...and some finely decorated churches still stand testimony... ...to the zenith of Ethiopia's renaissance. Okay, so what they're calling Ethiopia here... ...Gonda... ...seems to be something, you know... ...a political um entity that is up the north and seems to be excluding the Oromo people down south possibly although Oromos are infiltrated right across Ethiopia all right we can't get too tied down with all of this because it's for you know I'd need one of those apps on an iPhone or iPad that show the borders shrinking and moving and you know like blobs all right. The Gondarin Empire itself began to collapse in the late 1700s and Ethiopia disintegrated into an amalgamation of principalities controlled by warlords. Okay, Cassie, this will be the uh, age of princes by now uh, that we've often talked about, that chaotic period. From the mid-19th century, after that, uh, two unifying leaders, Tedros II, and Johannes IV started to pull Ethiopia together again. The next section reads Enter the British, which I've spent a fair bit of time on in previous episodes. Right. Tedros II tried to gain support for his reforms and technical schemes by writing to Queen Victoria. When his letters went unanswered, letters, plural. Okay, we had fun talking about a, a certain letter. But you know, possibly he sent a number of letters, and they went unanswered, you know so all right, when his letters went unanswered, he imprisoned imprisoned a British consul and several missionaries. We know about that. Uh, Cameron was amongst those prisoners, right? Now, where am I? Oh, sorry, I'm scrolling in. This led, just give me a second. This led to a British military expedition. No, that's the one. That's Napier. We know that, which stormed his mountain stronghold at Magdala in eighteen sixty eight. Eighteen sixty eight. Remember that, Damien, In eighteen sixty eight, where Tedros, crying, "I shall never fall into the hands of the enemy," shot himself in the mouth with his pistol. Okay, this is where I might criticise an article like this and most articles I ever read and most history books I ever read. What's the proof that he said that? I shall never fall into the hands of the enemy. From what I've heard, no one was even present when he shot himself. Now, that information that I've got could be wrong with the point is I was told that for certain and now I'm getting told this for certain that he said noble words before he shot himself. Um, I do worry that too often in history great pithy words are attributed to great leaders and Tedros was a great leader no two ways about it but the point is um, so often when you read histories and the last words of some great person ring through the ages and they're just the most perfect words that anyone could come up with just before they died you know When in real life, half the time, they probably said something like, you know, oh, this arrow really hurts, you know, as it's sticking out of their guts, you know. And, um, you know, I think that's far more likely, you know. The last words of a lot of great military leaders surely was, ouch, that hurt, you know. But we get handed down something like, I shall never fall into the hands of the enemy. I shall fight them on the beaches, you know, which we don't have because we're Ethiopia, you know, something like that. So you always get this stuff, and I worry about that. But, you know, it's said as a matter of certainty that Tedros cried, I shall never fall into the hands of the enemy. Hmm. Anyway, he's dead, and here we go. The British force then proceeded to loot the libraries of the palace and the church nearby, we know that's true, taking hundreds of manuscripts manuscripts back to England. Few have been returned from the British Museum to this day. Well, few artefacts have been returned from any... And Now I'm, I'm speaking here, this is not reading. But few things have been returned to anywhere in the history of humanity. So that's not unusual, that Britain would not return things. If everyone returned everything, well, you know, has anyone ever thought that through? I think people have, actually, and it starts to get really ridiculous. Um, but still, you know, I personally like the idea that of something that's very clearly associated with the culture of a uh, place, Like, you know, the Elgin marbles really, I think, do belong back in Greece. And these manuscripts do belong back in Ethiopia. But there are other things that, you know, it's very hard to um, return things um, in a way that makes any sense. But we'll keep going. Few have been returned from the British Museum to this day. All right, this person reading this you know, might be suggesting that he or she thinks they should be, okay? Do you think, actually, reading this? Um, Yeah, it's a tricky one, that one. Mm. Um, When you, in history, when you conquer people, um, (laughs) see, this is where it gets to. Like, take the Hungarians, for example. They completely just stole the land that they call Hungary now. Uh, if you're going to start returning artefacts, you know, should Hungary return that land? That sort of thing. It gets very tricky if you, keep, if, you, if you follow it down the rabbit hole. Alright, finish off this article. Johannes IV, a chief from Tigray, succeeded in holding the expansionist forces of both Egypt and Italy at bay okay, we've gone past Tedros now and we've moved on to the next emperor who we know, Johannes IV. And we do know that Egypt and Italy uh, wanted to colonise Ethiopia. Um, okay, so Johannes IV, a chief from Tigray, oh, we describe him as an emperor, don't we? Succeeded in holding the expansionist forces of both Egypt and Italy at bay, but was killed in battle against the Sudanese Martist armies in 1889. Power then reverted to the Amhara line from the central region of Shoa and Emperor Menelik II was crowned. It's a bit rough that they called Johannes IV a chief from Tigray and they referred to Menelik II as the emperor in this article. I presume Johannes IV was crowned. All right. End of article. And that's that. There is my instant episode 10, in which for the first time I've actually read something. I won't be making a habit of that, I don't think, but then I don't make any promises about anything. I don't know what I'm going to do in the future. End of episode. Until next time.